Hello, and welcome to yet another thrilling episode of My Dog Will Eat My Face. I am actually facing quite the conundrum this week because of recent experiences that I had led me to certain conclusions that I will talk about later and that I was going to share. But (laughs) just before it came time to publish that podcast, Something happened that basically shot my point in the foot. (laughs) I had originally thought I was going to make, and it had some bearing. And then more or less at the very end when I was ready to talk about it, uh, everything with it that I thought was a conclusion, foregone conclusion, basically just went completely pear-shaped. And I knew that I couldn't really publish what my original intention was, knowing full well that the example that I was going to refer to basically blew up in my face at the last minute. And I I know I'm being very nebulous at this point when I'm talking about these topics. And I'll absolutely uh, add more color to this as I fill in the content uh, here in this podcast. Um, So... The only thing that I'm really left with is I suppose my original conclusion and I guess to some extent at least being proven wrong with that conclusion. And also need, I think I need to address, if I haven't fully done so already, a really significant difference between my experience in hospice care and with the various organ failures I'm dealing with now that are, uh, for lack of a better word, very anomalous in how they impact my life versus a lot of other people facing the same things. So, I'm 
going to explain what my original content plan was for this week's uh, podcast and then how it got all pear-shaped on me at the last minute. Basically, it more or less proved me incorrect. (laughs) But again, I'll fill you in more details later. And I think it raises another broader issue that I need to remember and probably my listeners need to remember. And it's essentially a mea culpa and an acknowledgement that my experiences are very unique in a lot of different ways. So if anyone is listening to my podcast, not just this one, but just in general, I think I need to also explain to some extent how from a medical standpoint my experience is very different and in many ways it's a good thing in some ways it's a bad thing and I think being honest about that with my listeners is the best step to take Uh, Because I don't want to paint an inaccurate picture in any way for others that might go through similar experiences. And the way to do that at least in this case, is to really explain how biologically my experience uh, may differ dramatically from other folks in hospice. So, (laughs) with that very nebulous outline, I will uh, go ahead and proceed to explain what the original plan was and why I have to say a little mea culpa. So, to get this party started, let me discuss my original plan for today's uh, broadcast. (laughs) For a few days to maybe, well, longer than that, I guess about a week and a half, maybe two weeks, 
Uh, I've been trying to offer assistance to a very dear friend of mine who I've known for, golly, decades, I think, now. And she was going through a very difficult time in her life because her father was just recently put into hospice care for uh, his medical issues. And what those are, I'm not going to get into that. I don't want to talk about someone else's medical issues because it's not important. They could be anything. But I was just trying to provide some points and some life hacks, so to speak, on how to navigate and manage hospice care as the patient and also as uh, the family, which, of course, was her role, role in all this. But I did also want to talk mainly about the experience from the patient perspective because that's where I'm limited to my first-hand knowledge, obviously. So I was helping my friend out just with some basic pointers uh, with respect to hospice care, things to plan on, things to do and steps to take to minimize financial problems or to manage uh, other symptoms that her father was experiencing, including uh, incontinence, actually, among other issues. And, uh, pardon me, and... I truly was just trying to help her out because I really do think when family members or patients think of hospice, they, they sort of cringe. They, they tend to take it as it's game over. And while I, I still don't believe it, it necessarily is game over, I kind of <laughs> landed on my face with one of my particular uh, points or advice that I gave. And that I told her that there is life after hospice. It does not mean you're dead yet. And you can still take advantage of your life when you're still living. Not as much as you could when you were healthy, granted. 
But there are still things to find joy in and to have a reason to continue and, and to live. And it's, it's not all doom and gloom is what I'm really getting at. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> shortly after saying that, uh, her father-in-law was, who was only in hospice for about four days at most, maybe three even, actually uh, just keeled over and died suddenly. And that was that. He was only in hospice for three to four days and was dead. So <clears throat> I kind of felt like that was some egg on my face, needless to say. And I, I have to face up to the fact that my experience And again, just medically speaking, uh, my experience is going to be most likely very different from a lot of people. Of course, every case is unique. So <clears throat> that still holds true, and that's, that's not different. Every, every case is unique. I don't think you're doomed to death with every hospice diagnosis. And I say that because that's not what happened to me. <laughs> when I first entered hospice, they gave me about two weeks to live. Well, that was about three years ago. <laughs> I'm still in hospice. <laughs> So, obviously, there's a big difference there, <laughs> going from three days to three years. Uh, yeah, there's a big deviation. And <clears throat> that really told me, <clears throat> pardon me again, something that I already sort of knew that when I describe my experience, it needs to be taken with at least some grain of salt. And the very reason for that is just quite simply my anatomy. And that is what's really dictating such a, a vast differential at this time, I believe. So, that being said, I think it's a good a time as any is to identify what I mean by uh, having 
in anomalous anatomy and explain that a little bit more thoroughly. I'm sure I, I'm, I'm sure I have in other podcasts, at least to some extent, but I don't know if I ever came forward and said, my experience is very unique. But that, that's true with everyone's experience. So I could be saying absolutely nothing profound, I guess. But I think I needed to come clean with anyone who listens to this. That your experience may indeed be very different from mine. And I can only explain my experience. I, I, I cannot explain others' experiences. I'm truly only firsthand familiar with my own. So, uh, it sounds like a no-brainer. Duh, of course I am. But I, I think it's important to underscore that because that difference in my anatomy has truly had a massive impact on my quality of life and my overall experiences in hospice care. And I will try to just explain all those differences as best as I can uh, here in this next segment. So that being said, here we go. <laughs> My anatomy is extraordinarily unique. And me saying that is not some form of braggadocio or something like that. I am quoting verbatim what my cardiology team has said and even what my hospice care provider has also said. They've both said the same thing. I have a totally unique anatomy. And that's their words. It's, it's not mine. So it's, it's not me trying to be a special snowflake or something stupid like that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just parroting what I've heard from medical experts. And, and I do know why they say that. It's not obviously just plucked out of thin air and said randomly. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a few good reasons behind that. And it all goes back to my congenital birth defect when I was born, obviously. But being a birth defect... That's kind of redundant. The birth defect when I was born. 
Wow. That's like the Department of Redundancy Department. Anyway, moving on. The uh, original birth defect was I was born without a right pulmonary artery. And I often tell people, so if you see one lying around, around somewhere, like in a parking lot, it's probably mine. <laughs> I jest, obviously. But... When I was about one-ish, they conducted an open-heart surgery, not even really knowing what they were going to find when they cut me open. And, and keep in mind, this was 1979, so I don't think we even had functioning MRIs back then, or if we did, they're far and few between. Today, PET scans or CAT scans are just all over the place. But going back to the 70s, I think all they had at that time was x-rays to rely upon. And if there's a medical expert listening to this and saying, I'm thinking, oh, you're an idiot, you're totally wrong. MRIs came out in 1975 or something. Okay. <laughs> but that being said, they still, I know for a fact, cut me open, not knowing what they were going to find. All they knew is I was turning blue Constantly, not constantly, but very frequently. And having, I was having difficulty breathing. So when they went in and saw I was missing the right pulmonary artery, which is a pretty big deal for oxidizing your your blood from the lungs so that it can distribute that oxygen to all the parts of the body and and make sure your organs don't die. <laughs> um, that That was a pretty major significant issue. And what they did at the time is they put together a Kevlar-like shunt to, uh, I guess, play the role as the right pulmonary artery. And I've been told that that was the very first fully artificial implant ever used on a person. And it made significant headway into having uh, artificial heart valves and, and uh, blood vessels and other things. So it actually was a pretty big contributor. And 
I do know that there are several medical journals out there that published my case as a new and interesting case study. So, right there I'm already different from most people, if not 90%. But the thing is even more dramatic than that, because the shunt is, in fact, still there performing, but it's not performing very well. I've been told through heart catheterizations that essentially it's very calcified and brittle now. Um, They dared not try to balloon it or inflate it for fear that it would cause a a full-on embolism and break it open and kill me. So they just left it all my life to this very day as it is. So technically, my right pulmonary artery that is in my 45-year-old body was built for a one-year-old. So (laughs) even though it is working to this day, It's not really pulling its weight anymore with an adult man. (laughs) So as time went on, as I grew up with this deficiency in oxygen, uh, my body basically did everything it could to adapt to the lack of blood flow. And what it did was it formed a huge web of peripheral blood vessels to channel the blood to the heart to get oxidized and then distributed to the rest of the body. So, when I even did my last heart catheter, my cardiologist came out and said, well, (laughs) I'm more confused now than before I went in. (laughs) Which is nothing you want to hear from your doctor. (laughs) So, essentially, yeah, it's just, and he showed me scans of this. I I saved the pictures that are around my place somewhere. But he showed me the pictures that my heart and lungs were just in a mesh, a heap of entangled and, like, a thicket of of blood vessels that the body generated. And they couldn't possibly do any surgery 
because of that. They don't know if they cut this blood vessel, it's not a big deal. Or if they cut this blood vessel, it's catastrophic and I die in the OR. They just don't know. <coughs> Pardon me. So any last minute attempts to do a surgery to try to enlarge that artery were all refused by surgery teams at multiple hospitals because the mortality rate was far too high. <clears throat> and beyond that, I found out actually pretty later in life that I also have a protein, uh, I think it's a protein C deficiency, which is a blood clotting disorder. And so what that can generally cause is a blood clot in a vessel, a blood vessel, and completely occlude it and make it essentially useless and unable to, to deliver oxygen, or, or I should say to deliver blood. And the same issue exists even in my legs. On the last uh, in-depth study they did, on one leg, the femoral artery was completely missing. It wasn't there. The most important artery going into the leg on one side was gone. Just didn't exist. And in lieu of that was this web of these peripheral blood vessels trying to get blood flow to the leg. Meanwhile, on the other leg, they found the remains of a very occluded femoral artery that was already in the process of being reabsorbed by the body. And that deficiency in that same circumstance could be what happened to me being born, with it, born without a right pulmonary artery in that it clotted, it became occluded before I was even born and was just reabsorbed by the body. So all of that <laughs> makes me a very unique case, medically speaking, from the get-go. So that unique anatomy is what prevented me from getting any continued treatment or interventions because they just didn't know how to manage that with my anatomy as it was or is, I should say.
So that right there is a pretty unique situation. <laughs> but going beyond that, I still have other circumstances that are not necessarily unique to me. But don't help <laughs> when, when they're all amalgamated together. It paints a very different picture than the vast majority of people. So that has led to just other unique circumstances. And apparently, even though it's amazing how well the body can adapt, and it's amazing it saved my life, essentially, but unfortunately, it's now to the point to where there's just nothing that can be done about it. So, to add additional color to my so-called unique anatomy, there's some other just rare factors in my case of congestive heart failure that's not typical that is i'm i'm not the typical patient uh, certainly not the typical patient for hospice and i've heard that many many times from my hospice caretakers My heart failure is not caused by anything like uh, morbid obesity or being very elderly or something like that. <clears throat> it, it the cause is just a congenital defect that I've had my whole life. So that's created a pretty strange situation wherein I am not the youngest, but probably one of the youngest uh, patients that my hospice provider has had. There are a few out there that are younger. But I'm definitely on the bottom five, say, in age. Because, again, I'm, I'm not excessively elderly. I'm only in my 40s. And at the time of the CHF diagnosis... 
I was otherwise a pretty healthy guy. I was working full-time as, as best as I could. <coughs> Pardon me. Even in the 20s, I would work out and exercise. Did I say in the 20s? Oh, my God. I think I did. <laughs> I meant to say in my 20s, I used to work out and exercise routinely. I was not around for the 1920s. <laughs> God. Um, anyway, yeah. They, uh, they say I'm very unusual. Most of their patients are just laying in bed all day and can hardly even move. And... I do things around the house all the time. And I received comments from nurses that visit me occasionally and they say, well, you're pretty chipper and other things like that. All because I went downstairs to let them into my secure building. <laughs> Just because I wasn't in bed. <laughs> so, comparatively to other patients, I'm just not the usual age. I'm not the usual case. And, uh, that does that, that just does create a unique or if not unique a rare uh, circumstance for me that doesn't fit the normal mold <clears throat> so yeah there there's a number of things out there that basically go further to uh, indicate that I'm very different in many ways than most uh, CHF sufferers. Then in, in addition to those facts, <clears throat> I've definitely had my fair share of injuries in life. <laughs> One of the worst ones is I snapped my femur off <clears throat> right below the ball, uh, uh, the ball in the socket as it came up to the hip. <clears throat> and they had to do a full uh, immersion, not full, they had to do a left side uh, uh, hip full replacement on the left side. So basically half my femur up and including my entire left thigh is all titanium. <laughs> and that's in addition to the shunt in my heart and Actually, multiple stints that were also put in and later interventions.
So I've joked with siblings and friends that I'm slowly turning into a cyborg. <laughs> Obviously, that's not the case. But over time, I've just been getting more and more artificial parts put in. <laughs> and it's... uh. Definitely adding to the mix of uncertainty with respect to my anatomy and how my experience will go with CHF. So, that's really what I, I, I did want to underscore. I, I mean, basically... My situation is very, very unique. And that's afforded me a lot of good luxuries, but also a lot of lousy things. I mean, you could say it's, it's relatively good that I'm still alive after several years of this. But that's really attributed mostly to my age and no other significant health issues like COPD or something like that. And so, unfortunately, though, that means that my eventual demise from heart failure is going to be a slow and arduous process. And if I had to make a choice, I would much rather go quickly than in some drawn-out, year-after-year, slow deterioration. Just because I don't want to have a lousy quality of life. At any point, at the very end of my life, still, I, still then, I don't want to have a poor quality of life. Who would, you know? So, when I do talk about things in my podcast about how I've dealt with it, how I've handled my emotions and challenges with it. I can't avoid the fact that I am a very unusual case. But for the most part, when I talk about my life and my congestive heart failure, I mostly talk about the psychological components of it. And most certainly 
Yes, I do discuss the physical, medical ramifications, but I think that the more profound things I've discussed have been just due to self-reflection and managing my emotions and thoughts and altering my view of life and death and everything about the world, the universe. Because that has dramatically changed. And I think those components are still applicable no matter what kind of condition you're facing. It doesn't have to be CHF. I think when you're dealing with the emotional fallback of significant health issues, I would venture to estimate that they are more similar than they are not. So I still think that certainly has a value to anyone else for me to share. And also, I'm not saying my physical components are not something to uh, I don't know what the word is (laughs) Uh, to bother with or to uh, uh, focus on, I, you know, I, the physical issues are real, obviously. And the only difference there is that my descent is going to be much slower than usual. And so, I really wanted to make that clear, because to me it was obvious that there's still life after hospice, because in my case that's absolutely true. But having what happened to my good friend's father forced me to realize more so that my condition is unique. And if you as a listener are taking my experience and experience and and comparing them to your own. It does not harm yourself, I don't think, to be aware of that difference. That's all I'm really trying to say. Because the fact of the matter is, yep, You can go into hospice and be dead in days. 
but that's just not been my experience. So I'll leave it at that. That's really all I wanted to uh, touch on. And uh, make sure that my listeners knew where my perspective was exactly coming from. So, with that clarification, I'm actually just going to <laughs> leave this particular podcast at that. I am fortunate in that with my situation, and I'm sure many others, that there is life after hospice. The fact of the matter is, though, unfortunately, that can't be so true for everyone. So, again, I just wanted my listeners to know my position and where I'm speaking from, essentially, with my own personal experience. Again, I don't think that eliminates the value of sharing that information, but everyone is different. And a lot of those differences, unfortunately, especially in cases like this, are not in your control. And I think it's important that Everyone does understand that. And please don't get mad at me (laughs) if you have a totally different experience in hospice or know someone else who had a completely different experience. Please don't get mad at me because I'm speaking to what my experience has been and that's all I can speak about. I I can't address things that are outside of my own personal life. And 
that's really it. And I did think it was important to scrap my original plan for today's podcast. (laughs) Because I think, even though I still believe that, the first thing I need to make clear is that I have a very unique anatomy. And my taste, taste, I can't talk. In my case in particular, (laughs) there's going to be some differences between me and other folks in the same situation. So, I think there is where I'm going to have to end this week. I'm sincerely sorry I don't have a lot of content today. The other issue, I'm sure you can hear it, is my voice is uh, having a lot of issues just to talk. In fact, that's been a pretty ubiquitous daily issue of mine that I did bring up with my nurse, I think just last week. But I've definitely been having a totally new (laughs) and unfortunate experience of every day my voice seems to be going out on me or is very raspy. And I'm sure you can hear it. It's not the ideal voice for a podcast. <laughs> and I, I, I guess they're stumped on the cause because so many different things could cause that. And again, with my crazy anatomy, it's hard to identify what biologically is causing that for them. But that's definitely been a more recent change in my physical condition to where every day I get up and I sound like I was up all night screaming at a hockey game or something. (laughs) And I wasn't. (laughs) Well, most nights I wasn't. Or I sound like a really bad uh, chain smoker. <laughs> That'd be classy. Nothing on a pack of Dave's cigarettes while on oxygen. <laughs> I've been told many times that people have seen others do that. 
just so messed up. I've never done it. I've, I've never been a smoker, so... I, I, with the rare exception of a cigar, I would sometimes enjoy a nice cigar. But I... I, I never was a regular smoker. Never smoked uh, cigarettes or anything like that, so... Cigars very rarely is about it. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's not because I'm uh, smoking so much. But every day it seems I wake up and my voice is just raspy. It persists throughout the day where my voice sometimes get a little better. But if it does, it will very quickly go backwards. It sounds right now. So that's fun. Anyway, if uh, you do want to support the podcast, you can do so. Look. Follow and turn on notifications so you you don't miss out on future more meaningful podcasts. <laughs> and if you wish to uh, support the podcast, you can go to its homepage on Spotify or patreon.com slash my God, my face. And you can support the podcast that but I know I say it every time and I still mean it best possible thing you could have done you already have if you've lasted this long through my Mia Culpa event with a lousy voice then you're a trooper (laughs) you're a trooper I, I thank you for giving me your time to discuss these experiences as they happen to me. I guess in this case, as they happen to others. So, there I am going to go rest my voice for a little while (laughs) so I can hopefully talk again normally, maybe later today. And uh, for now, just leave it at Ophidison.